Uh, Jennifer, tell us a little about yourself and what your path has been. Sure. Um, I've worked in corporate America for over 30 years. Uh, I was uh, ended, or well, let's hope not ended, but uh, my last role was as the Levi's brand president, overseeing all of product design, um, as well as marketing. I'd been the chief marketing officer for eight years before that. Um, it was a job I loved. I stayed at the company 23 years. I loved the brand. I still wear the brand. Um, but ultimately, my time there came to an end, even though I was on the path to becoming the next CEO, uh, because I had been outspoken about school closures and other restrictions on children during COVID. Uh, I was very outspoken for two full years from the very beginning. It seemed to me that these choices were misguided. Uh, the data supported that. We're seeing that play out now uh, with learning loss and mental health impacts and high absenteeism and violence in the schools. Uh, but I was told, you know, you really can't talk about this. Um, you know, I lived in San Francisco at the time and pretty much no one but me and my husband believed that uh, this was going to be harmful and that beyond that, it was a violation of our civil rights. And I was encouraged aggressively over those two years to stop speaking out about it. And I declined that offer. <laughs> and ultimately in January of 2022, I was told I needed to leave. I was offered severance, a large package to stay quiet, which I also rejected because I felt the silencing of debate and dissent is what led us down this path of creating these harms for not just children, but everyday folks. Um, and so I didn't want to be silenced. I did not want to muzzle myself. So I did not accept the money. And that's why I can be here talking to you and why I was able to write a book. That's well, incredible. Um, I'm wondering if you uh, uh, can maybe uh, sell some of your bravery uh, to everybody else. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, if we can get little talisman pieces of your clothing or something like that. I mean, how, how do you how do you um, uh, source your bravery and strength? It's interesting because I don't really think of it that way. And in fact, I think my background before my life in corporate America is relevant. I was an elite gymnast throughout the 1980s. And I was the national champion in 1986, a seven-time national team member. But I grew up in a culture that was incredibly cruel and abusive. It was rife with physical, emotional, and even sexual abuse, which the entire world knows now uh, because of the story of Dr. Larry Nasser, who had been the USA team coach for 30 years and is now in prison for life for sexually assaulting hundreds of young athletes. Uh, my first book was about this abusive culture in 2008. And I was an early whistleblower. It was really the first first person account of the abuse in the sport and people didn't like it. Um, I was pilloried, I was ostracized, I was called a liar and a grifter. Um, I did not realize that would be the response, although I guess I probably should have, uh, but the ranks closed in within the sport and the Olympic movement to just oust me and demonize me and vilify me as someone just out to make a buck, you know, a bitter, angry ex-gymnast. But I was driven by the fact that no one was standing up for these kids and that these, this totally abusive culture was normalized by coaches and the leadership in the sport. And kids were just discarded without any regard and, and suffered as young adults coming out of the sport. And so when COVID hit and I saw the restrictions, which were most onerous for children and still are 
-hmm. really. I was driven by the fact that no one had stood up for me as a child. Mm. Um, I sort of held that close. And I also held close the fact that ultimately within the sport of gymnastics, I was proven right. Now it took 10 years. Um, But ultimately when the story about Nasser broke, all of the athletes who had criticized me came to my defense and and pretended that they'd always stood with me. Of course, they had total amnesia because everybody wants to imagine themselves on the right side of history. Um, Unfortunately with COVID, I was unable to beat the clock. You know, it didn't, it didn't play out in the two year timeframe, which led to me losing my job. But my point is, you know, I was raised in this culture of such extreme obedience. You know, I have to overcome a lot personally to speak out. You know, my inclination is not to start fights and to be very aggressive. And my tone generally the entire two years and now is diplomatic um, because I'm trying to build bridges. You know, I, I understand that people are going to disagree, but that if we talk to each other calmly, maybe we can find some common ground. And so I guess my point is I don't think of myself as particularly brave, but I won't abide harming children Hmm. and I won't carry a lie to protect an ideology. I just can't, I I can't do it. Whatever harm comes to me, I will not further a lie. And it was a lie from the beginning that there was no aid stratification of risk. It was a lie from the beginning that closed schools were not going to harm children, low income children the most. And it was so clear to me, both me and my husband, it was all right there. And Hmm. we were told you can't say this. If you say it, you're a racist. You're every terrible, bigoted name you can be. And I just didn't care. I stayed focused on the truth. Well, that's wonderful. Um, you know, there, there are a couple different thoughts uh, come uh, to mind. You know, one is that, uh, you know, children, uh, you know, the Simpsons always had a meme and it was, it's based on society. It's like anything you say with, what about the children? You know, people always had this primary concern of, of the children's welfare. And, and I think things got flipped around um, yeah. in, in this kind of safetyism view uh, to care more than, about themselves. It, it became a selfish yeah. thing. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that the, there's a thread through what you are saying of caring about the children, both in your own experience and, and putting your yourself, you know, on the line um, morally and emotionally with your, your book chalked up um, to protect children, future episodes. And in this case as well, um, to, to kind of protect children. Um, I, I'm just gonna interject one other part, which is that in the Soviet era, um, they wouldn't allow Western broadcasts, you know, from Western Europe and so forth, um, because people could, were, were theoretically living in a, in, a, in, a, in a perfect paradise of socialism. Um, and, and to see that other people actually living better uh, would, would break that bubble. Um, and, and in the world, there was this, this huge kind of lockstep of lockdowns mm-hmm. and, and keeping people out of schools, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't perfect. Sweden kept the schools open and, and, and the, the kind of the, the broad ignorance when I say ignorance, ignoring um, that fact that there were places that did not adhere to it. So even in the United States, there were Catholic schools that yeah. stayed open um, and, yeah. and that people were not dropping dead. Uh, the teachers were not dropping dead and all that kind of stuff. There was this um, kind of, again, I call it, it's ignorance in both senses. It's ignorance because it was ignorant and it's ignorance because people were ignoring uh, actual facts and comparisons. And it has that Soviet, Soviet aspect, which is they can't yeah. countenance uh, contrary viewpoints. Um, 
so th th I apologize for that little uh, discourse diatribe. No, that, that's correct. I mean, that, that was a huge part of it, right? Is there was this sort of manufactured consensus by demonizing anyone who challenged and that included well-respected doctors um, as well as sort of normies like me who just knew how to read the data. It's not that complicated. You know, my career was built on reading and understanding data, albeit for commercial ends. And, you know, I may be just be some, you know, marketing lady, but I can read a bar chart and I understand mm -hmm. what a median is. And all of this data was abundantly clear from the outset, this extreme age stratification. In addition to that, um, it was just wrong. You know, every pre-pandemic playbook stated you never close schools for more than a very limited period of time, even for a disease with a much higher infection fatality rate because the harms to children and the broader society are just too great. And we threw all that out of the wind out the window. Um, but the press, I really hold journalists um, very much to account here because they did nothing but report pharmaceutical press release press releases and government issued talking points as journalism. Um, and they failed to interrogate the issue and in this way manufactured consensus, which allowed people like you and me to be demonized, sort of pushed to the fringe, which is exactly what happened. In my own company, I was called every name you could be called. I was called a racist and a science denier and all those things now um, you know, that we hear and sort of laugh about. I was asked if I believed in conspiracy theories as if anybody says yes, even if they do. Um, and it went so far as to ask me, you know, are you with us or against us? Are you one of us or one of them? One of them being sort of the evil alt-right bigoted loons. Um, I mean, it was like a CCP struggle session when I was asked these questions mm -hmm. and that enabled them to just paint me as this sort of fringe psychopath. When in fact, there were plenty of us <laughs> that asked questions, but to your point, um, it would puncture this narrative that was so carefully constructed and allowed them to continue with these catastrophic policies and feel very virtuous in doing so. Mm. Um, the virtue piece of it is what I think brought the masses along because by doing nothing, you know, the well-to-do could stay home and order food and work at their computer and feel that they were saving the world. You know, that's a real ego boost. Yeah. No, it's a team sport. Um, my, my brothers are both Yankee fans. I grew up in the Bronx. I live in Boston. I've been here for 40 years. And so my kids, you know, rooted for Red, Red Sox and so forth. And I was seen as a traitor. Um, and this is just on, you know, something that's pretty inconsequential. Every now and then, you know, what player Johnny Damon would be on the Red Sox and he was bad. And then he'd go to the Yankees. He'd be good in their view. Funny. And so a lot of yeah. these things had nothing to do with the rationality, whether Johnny Damon is a good or bad person or a good or bad player. It's what yeah. was he on the Red Sox or was he on the Yankees? And, and a lot of this is just kind of team sport. It, it, you, you parse out, you know, the truth and the, the, the morality and so forth. And it's, this is what we are doing and what we are not doing. Um, you know, I, I yeah. I, and the, I, I would add the team here was, it was the Democrats, you know, further the left-wing democratic, platform. And I have been a lifelong Democrat, mm -hmm. probably further left than most of my peers. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't call myself that anymore. I don't know what I am. Mm -hmm. um, but there was, you know, that was team Democrat, team D. And I, I would also argue that in many ways, I was a traitor to my class, because 
you know, the class ethos was we can stay home. What's the harm? You're a selfish jerk if you want to get a haircut. And at the same time, we used, uh, we expected low wage workers to go to work and shield the upper classes from exposure. You know, I think my boss, the CEO of Levi's, my former boss, I don't, he, I don't, he barely left his house for an entire year. He refused to walk his dog outside because that was assumed to be too dangerous. And, you know, this was the, the class ethos in San Francisco where I lived, which is a 96%, I think, democratic city. I, th I thought it was 105%. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, I never met a Republican there. So, you know, it, it enabled them to kind of position me because they live in this bubble as some kind of crazy foreign entity that they never met that lives in some weird flyover state that believes in QAnon Pizzagate conspiracy theories. You know, that's how I was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. per, that, that's how I was depicted. Yeah. And it wasn't true to your point. You know, lots of schools, Catholic schools stayed open. The results from a learning loss perspective are they stayed neutral to improved. Red states opened in the fall. It was predicted in headlines that essentially all the teachers and all the kids in those schools would die. That didn't happen, but it wasn't reported on. Mm -hmm. And European schools beyond Sweden all opened in the fall as well. Did they have periodic closures, which I would still argue were misguided? Sure. But they did not stay shuttered for a full 18 months, which is what uh -huh. happened in California. Yeah, no, there was there was this, I, I, I started my little it was kind of like a barking in the in the wilderness. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I had been like had my own struggle sessions um, I, I, it's on a small scale. I belong to a congregation, religious congregation. I um, belong to a, two different tennis clubs and uh, an investor group. And all of those four groups, um, I was the outlier. I'm a medical doctor, and I guess I've been a medical doctor as a, an outlier as a physician in some ways. But I ran my own practice for 27 years, and I, you know, was successful at it. Um, but, uh, you know, but the things I said were, you know, pretty obvious from the Diamond Princess experiment yeah. in January that this was not a, a massive killer. It wasn't anthrax on wings. It wasn't, um, you know, the zombie apocalypse, um, invasion of the body snatchers, pod people, um, all these, you know, horrible things that people imagine, you know, it was a, a, you know, a bad cold for the uninitiated and for the elderly. And it was, could be severe, but probably on the level of an influenza, if you hadn't gotten a flu shot anyway, um, you know, but they, they, I, I was shouted down. So I started this, um, uh, back, you know, three years ago, I guess. And, uh, you know, one thing I noted was there was going to be the Sturgis rally um, yeah. in North Dakota. And this was, a, you know, annually, it's a huge group. And it's usually people who, you know, give I'm not going to show which finger they would give one of these fingers they would give to all the all the I can't remember which one it was um, um, to, to all these, you know, kind of constraints. And so they're not a constraint kind of group. Uh, they're riding their yeah. motorcycle, whatever. So 86,000 convened in Sturgis. And I follow this pretty closely. I, you know, over the succeeding weeks, I tried to see whether blips in North Dakota, Minnesota, you know, all surrounding areas, so forth, nothing. Um, they, 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 Sturgis apparently convened and, and unconvened without fanfare. And mind you, these are usually kind of obese-ish 
kind of, you know, middle-aged guys, whatever, and who, you know, may very well have health comor comor comorbidities that they don't even keep track of, so forth. And that was pillory. That, again, I'm sorry to use that word three uh, twice, but but that was uh, lambasted, a uh, new word. Um, yeah. And yet, in, in rapid succession, uh, came came upon the the BLM, you know, George Floyd-ish rallies uh, with larger groups and so forth. And those were deemed as as actual demonstrations of public health because it was a good public health thing to vent and and, and to get your emotions out and that and so it again it was like but the Sturgis was 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 vilified and and these other you know similar size rallies were not you know so all seemed very um yeah you know kind of like the uh, through the looking glass you know if i say it it's right if you say the same thing you're wrong and it's well, they like were the that. bad people, the Sturgis people that were gathering. They were the bad people. Yeah, they're bad people. Presumably. Yeah. yeah. And the headlines beforehand were that it would be a mass death event. And when that didn't play out, everybody, you know, we just moved on and everybody ignored it. Um, same with Georgia, Governor Kemp opening schools. It was said it was going to be a, you know, mass death event. It wasn't, but then it wasn't reported on. Same in Florida. Um, so what you're left with is the headlines only and no actual reporting on what really happened. And you're, you're right, the, the, the rallies in, in the summer of 2020 were celebrated as necessary for public health. Meanwhile, if you attempted to have an anti-lockdown rally during that same period, the notifications were removed from social media. I know this because my husband and I did so. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I've had, you know, I've been doing, I kind of went, you know, verged from these more solo broadcasts to doing interviews. Um, and so I've interviewed a lot of, you know, kind of the big names in the COVID resistance, uh, what I call my kind of profiles in courage. And uh, I have an interview with Dr. Merrill Nass. Um, and and it's, it's, it's you know, and I've got another one with Professor Retsef Levy uh, from MIT. And those have like destroyed uh, you know, my YouTube. I mean, I, 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 I it kind of blitzed, you know, my, I had a whole, you know, I don't know, forever, you know, decade or whatever of a YouTube channel, boom, just gone. And there's no recourse that's just like, you're done. And, and all these kinds of posts and Dr. Meryl Nass is a wonderful person and she's a doctor up in Maine and she, you now they got her, they dis, you know, they, this, uh, whatever, disbarred her, they, um, from the, the, her medical license because, um, she was by hook or by crook getting ivermectin for her patients. And I don't really, I don't try to weigh in on whether ivermectin works or doesn't work, but I think that there's a reasonable right to try, especially in the pre-vaccine year of, of, you know, doing stuff. And humans have always done this. I mean, a secondary usage for medications is a very common thing. Um, yeah. You know, aspirin, metformin, um, um, you know, all both the hair medications, Rogaine and, and Propecia, are, are all secondary uses or happen to be found. Frankly, Viagra, Cialis, and so forth, was, was, those, those start as anti-anginal medications for heart. And they just happen to have a secondary, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, benefit. I, I guess benefit, <laughs> uh, which in my own uh, counterfactual world probably would have stopped World War II if, if Adolf Hitler had found it in the, in the 1920s. Um, but, you know, so there's been huge benefit um, from finding secondary use. And ivermectin is, you know, one when it's founder of the Nobel Prize, it's not this horse dewormer. It's a very well-known medication and has anti-lysosomal properties, uh, which, you know, could be beneficial as an antiviral. And there's huge literature between SARS-1 and SARS-2, between 2003 and 2019, of ivermectin as potential treatment for SARS-1. And SARS-2 is basically SARS-1, just having kind of sat in a lab for a while. And so she got disbarred 
Oh, and then I got kind of, you know, I, every time I put her video up, you know, something happens. Um, and they say that she minimized COVID-19. Frank, frankly, in fact, it's the opposite. You know, she went out of her way to treat COVID-19, you know, yeah. and put her license online. And, and, and they got her because she lied about a patient, you know, problem saying, you know, that she had had a parasite, you know, so that so that she ah. could get the ivermectin. So they couldn't sure. get ivermectin in Maine. So she made up a diagnosis. So she made a secondary diagnosis for a secondary use of a secondary medication for a primary problem. Anyway, <laughs> you know, and, and Dr. Retsef Levy, what he said, I, you know, totally blitzed my other channel. Um, but, but the WHO has adopted exactly what he said, which is stop giving this to children, you know, and, and it's the risk benefit ratio is, is very different for children from, from adults. And, you yeah. know, my, my 90 year old, uh, uh, 91 year old mother-in-law, ultimately she passed a few months ago, not from COVID. We had her in our house uh, for a decade. And uh, we would have let her out, but she didn't want to leave um, all through COVID. And she wanted every vaccine that you come by. Fine. Totally cool. Because she doesn't have a long term about which to worry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but an eight year old, a nine year old uh, does. And, and there's no reason to treat them the same. There's no reason to, to do an experimental modality. Um, and there's no reason to give them, frankly, Corona shots um, when they have already had COVID. So all these things were, were hugely against medicine, hugely against medicine forever. And the way things got, kind of got played out and twisted around through the media, uh, not the media, the, the mediation of the media um, or the intermediation um, by these kind of misinformation, you know, misinformation fact checkers, both of which are incorrect terms in their case, was, was I, I think, borderline criminal, if not criminal. Um, yeah. But I, I kind of want to uh, segue into um into you, because um, I, I talk too much. I apologize. Um, I did. I did warn you. Um, but 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 how has life been? Uh, what what are the changes? Uh, what do you see um, kind of in your pathway? And I also want to touch on one little thing. I was reading uh, the Mika Brzezinski interview of you in, in 2021 when you're still, I guess, a hero. Um, and in that piece, it, you, you apparently were um, uh, leading a, a, a black group at Le uh, Levi's. Um, and what happened with that and what happened with the DEI afterwards? Because I reading I was reading your sure. New York Post article later. So that's a big sure. question, but it's kind of got a few. Yeah, I would say the 2021 feature uh, called Know Your Value with Mika, which I think was the first time they featured me. That was on the heels of Athlete A a film that I produced and initiated, which is about the gymnastics abuse um, and the Larry Nasser case, uh, winning an Emmy in, for, in 2020 for best investigative documentary and doing this all while I was you know, still working as a, as a leader at Levi's. Um, and we did talk about that. And you know, I'll, I'll, I, I've gotten some criticism for sort of having been involved in this employee resource group, which employee resource groups are all the rage in corporate America. And in 2017, I became the executive sponsor of the Black Employee Resource Group at Levi's. And I think it was the first one formed. Um, here's what I'll say. I'm, I'm a bit of, of two minds on this. I actually don't really have an issue with creating communities within a community, um, especially when they are communities who have similar experiences. And, you know, I'll say this, I grew up at Levi's at a time where there weren't very many women in senior positions. Um, it wasn't particularly easy 
sexism was rampant. It was not uncommon to be at a sales meeting and have sort of drunken sales guys, you know, taking a taking a shot at you, which I, I generally tried to avoid, but that was bad for your career too, not to show up and be at the party and socializing. And so, you know, you sort of had to thread that needle as a woman. Um, and I think it's a testament to the fact that corporate cultures have improved that that behavior on the part of sales guys would no longer be acceptable. And I mean, I have stories from 23 years of really unacceptable things that, that would shock you. And there, a lot of them are in the book. Um, I wish as a new parent at Levi's, I started in 99 and I had my first child in 2000. I wish there was a way for me to connect with other young moms just to be able to share what we were going through. Our largest employee resource group at Levi's was for new parents. It was for parents. And so they're not all race-based and they really were initially about creating community within the community, all with the same sort of aspiration to contribute to the larger company goals. We had a veterans group, for instance, um, and there were many that were race-based. There was a black, a black employee resource group, Asian, et cetera, et cetera. I was asked to be the executive sponsor by employees in my organization. Um, at the time, that was my marketing organization because I have two mixed race grown children. They're black, their dad is, is black. Um, and we had often talked about issues, you know, that young men face in the world, young men of color. And they felt I, you know, was part of their community and that we shared a lot of the same concerns. Um, and having an executive sponsor that cares about the issues enables the group to get more visibility. Where I take issue with these employee resource groups is when they don't create cohesion, rather distance and separation from the broader organization. And when they are prioritized for jobs, um, you know, which should be based on merit and performance in a role. And so at the end of the day, I think it's all about execution. I am not against them on their face. As I said, I would have loved to have had connections with other like-minded women in the company. I sought those out on my own, but there was no sort of means of finding each other. You know, you were left to your own devices. So, you know, I, I'm so proud of that. I don't have an issue with it. There's a lot of folks that criticize me for that. And that's fine. I'll take the criticism. Um, I think, like I said in the beginning, it was about creating this kind of cohesion and community. And ultimately, I think they evolved to be much more divisive. So, so that that's when you say ultimately, and you know, more divisive, I mean, it sounds like it was also uh, vindictive uh, to you. Um, there's the the, the DEI um, at uh, Levi's, um, uh, which maybe, you know, would have been just as happy to have you DIE. Um, had, yeah, had... I mean, you raise a, a good point. So this group that I've been very connected to, including, you know, um, many folks in my own organization that I was close to professionally, and in some cases, you know, got to know them personally, um, this was the group that demanded at a certain point that I do what they called an apology tour because um, the stances that I was taking and my appearance ultimately on a Fox News program I was invited to be on the Ingram Angle in March of 21 were viewed as racist and how could I as the leader of this organization, the Black Employee Resource Group, um, continue to lead this organization if I was 
an obvious racist. I mean, that was the the thinking. Um, and I was viewed to now be a wolf in sheep's clothing, despite all my efforts to bring cohesion to this group, to bring folks together, um, to provide them with opportunities, et cetera. Um, and so I was asked by um, my co-sponsor of the Black Employee Resource Group, as well as the head of DEI, to do this apology tour. I was very hesitant, of course, but I was trying to hang on to my job. You know, at this point, mm-hmm. I was a year in and it became clear to me that that might not be possible. I thought I'll do it because I'm not gonna apologize, but I'll explain myself. Mm-hmm. You know, there. It, this was in the spring of 21, the schools in San Francisco were still not open. And you know, there was starting to be some agitation that they should open. In fact, the mayor of San Francisco, a black woman sued the district to get the schools open. Like I was not alone at this point. The mayor of San Francisco agreed with me, (laughs) you know? So I was asked to do this quote unquote apology tour. I agreed to do it. It happened in June of 21, it was virtual. Um, I introduced myself to new members in the group. I explained my history of of child advocacy. And, you know, I just went right to cut right to the chase. And I said, I know many of you are upset by the things I've said um, in the media. I want to explain my stance. Uh, I have four children, all public school children, et cetera, et cetera. I went on. I got three questions. I did not apologize. I did not bend a knee. That never works. You know, I was not going to prostrate myself. I had done nothing wrong. I'm happy to apologize if I've done something wrong. I did not do anything wrong. Um, I got three questions. Let's see if I can remember the questions. Um, one was about my husband. He had he was more aggressive in the positions he took and less narrow. I was very focused on children. He was starting to talk about vaccine ineffectiveness and the um, you know immorality of forcing people to take them. Mm. Um, and so I was asked about him, and my explanation there was simply, he doesn't work here. It doesn't really matter what he thinks. I don't have to defend whether or not I agree with him. I've said nothing publicly. I've never gone against, I've never spoken out against any policy from the company, right? I never did. We were still remote at this point, but we had a mask mandate. If you were in the office, I complied. We had a vaccine mandate. I complied. I was coerced, but I complied. And, you know, I I think that would be grounds for firing if you, if you, you know, as an executive team, if you agree on certain policies, for one of those executives to go rogue and then reject the policy publicly, that's a violation. I did not do that. I went along with with all of the policies. So I was asked about him. And then I was asked about appearing on the Ingram show. And did I understand why that, in fact, made me a racist? (laughs) Because I had spoken with the enemy. And I explained that we had tried, me and my little open schools moms from across the country to get a seat at the table in the national media for over a year. We were not able to. And so when I was invited on a show with a very large audience, um, I thought, we thought it was important. And I knew I could stick, I could be on message. And everyone in the room, in the virtual room, agreed that I'd said nothing wrong, but the issue was who I said it to. So I had, you know, consorted with the enemy and now I was the enemy. And this is part of my message is we have to talk to people we disagree with. I'm sure I disagree with her on something. Mm. But the other, the, the other thing that I find kind of funny is, of course, they said, but her audience is so horrible. They're so evil. And you're, you know, you're courting this evil audience. And I was like, but you've all seen it. Like, yeah, so it doesn't right, right. make any sense. Right. You know, you guys have seen it. So they're not all evil in your minds and it has a really broad reach and, and has the potential to kind of start to mainstream this message. 
the Fox cable news is the most watched cable news show in the country. It's not, it's not fringe. And it's actually the most watched by 25 to 50 year old Democrats. Are they all doing oppo research? No, I think they agree with some of it. And so that was a ridiculous line of questioning. I handled it. And the last question was really just a comment, which was to thank me on my about for being so honest. After the session, which I was very nervous for, but I felt it went well, I got a few nice notes saying, I didn't understand your view before, but I do now. And if I had children, I would probably do the same thing. So I thought it went well. Um, and it did, in fact, but that did not last long. And, you know, I would just say there was a small group of very vocal, punitive employees who continued to harangue the CEO, the head of HR, and the head of corporate communications. I don't think it was a large group. I think it was small. And they don't like it. It's noise, you know. Right. And and then, of course, there were external trolls um, on mm -hmm. social media that started to call for my firing and, and the boycotting of the company. Now, none of this played out. Our business was good. None of it gained traction. We emerged from COVID and store closures strong, you know, in large part due to the work that I did with my team. Um, but it was noise that they didn't like. And I, you know, they got, they got tired of it. And to, to my mind, it would have been very easy to resolve. Um, I was performing in my role. The CEO could have stood up in front of the company and said, I know some of you take issue with what Jen is saying, but she's a citizen and she has a right to say what she believes, just as you do. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Let's get back to work. Right. It, it would have gone away. It would have been done. I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, the, the, you know, nobody wants to put his hand in a, in a wood chopper or whatever that thing is in Fargo, um, wood chipper. <laughs> Um, but, but it, but the wood chipper is, is not always real. Sometimes it's the monster under That's the right. bed and you think That's the monster's right. under the bed and speaking of beds, this reminds me of the princess and the pea, uh, you know, the princess had perceives this pea and cannot like be comfortable because she knows there's some little tiny pea under seven mattresses. Oftentimes I think the trolling is, is a kind of a bot generated, um, organized, uh, it's, it's not quite organized crime, but it is a crime that is so organized um, of, of people who, you know, in uh, kind of like drone attack uh, certain people uh, and they hammer that one down. It's, again, all these things are very kind of Marxist, like the struggle session is to get at the one who speaks out because if you get at that one who speaks out, then nobody else uh, does anything. Uh, Mao. That's right. Um, Mao had a, a, you know, China, when Mao took over in 1948, had a, you know, an opium problem. And uh, this is a book I have not yet put out, but uh, I have a book on, on uh, opioid addiction. And I've done a fair amount of history, uh, you know, searching. And, you know, how did he get rid of the opiate problem? Well, he, he hanged um, a few uh, dealers, or a few prominent opium den owners. And he only had to hang a few. Um, and in yeah. and certain places around the country, then, That's right. then pretty much that dried up. Um, and right. so he didn't have to do what we do, which is the war on drugs. And we have placards and posters and you know people imploring you to this and that so forth that was pretty much done it was done and dusted um they got rid of yeah. the, the, the opiate problem uh, which you know yeah. kind of brings up the question whether it's an actual disease or not but that's that's in my book uh, to come um oh, I, i'm just gonna kind of um, all my stuff is is mimic yours but on very much tinier scale um in in the process of producing my book overturning zika it wasn't a book originally it was just an article in 2019 and and i had an editor in new zealand 
And I tried to get this thing published everywhere, anywhere. And so science journals, medical journals, you know, Indianapolis Star, any, any Houston Chronicle, anybody, you know, so I had a mailing list and I tried it a thousand places. I couldn't get it published anywhere. And American Greatness did publish it. And it's a book that was skeptical. I mean, it's an article that was skeptical about the narrative of Zika. And I'm totally factual. I only go for the facts. I'm not trying to, you know, I, don't, I think Zika is a real thing. Microcephaly is real, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, my editor, um, whom I hired on Upwork, uh, she fired me. <laughs> she fired me. Like, I thought that was my job to do the firing, but she fired me because uh, I was in American greatness and American greatness supported Donald Trump. Right. Uh, I, it had nothing to do with my politics. And the article is not political. It's about a virus. Viruses don't vote. Right. Now, microcephaly doesn't vote. Pregnant women may vote, but but not anything to do with this. And 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 over and over again. And and just to one other point, which is redolent of what you're saying, is my three encounters with kind of like quasi-famous people in producing my book were with Donald McNeil, the erstwhile chief science reporter, global health expert at the New York right. Times, and the two editors of JAMA. And I was on a Zoom call with them early 2020. Dr. Howard. Bauschner and Dr. Edward Livingston. And, and the latter two were interested in my article and, and Livingston wanted to publish it in JAMA. And I was like, you know, when he said it on the Zoom call, I was like, yay. And then he said, but, um, uh, but, you know, COVID's coming around the corner. He didn't call it COVID. Like, you know, this coronavirus thing's coming around the corner. We don't want to sow any doubt on the public health establishment. So we're not going to publish. We'll wait and see when this thing blows over. Maybe we'll publish it. And so that's why I started to write the book. Anyway, this is me not you. Um, but the interesting thing, the thing that I reason I'm bringing this up is all three of these gentlemen, um, Livingston, Bauschner and McNeil, for different reasons too. Bauschner and Livingston, because they said that doctors are not innately racist and they try to, you know, Livingston says he saw patients as patients, you know, a liver problems, a liver problem, an adrenal problem, an adrenal problem. You know, that, that's what he treats. He gets the blood test. He treats, you know, he doesn't right. see, really see race and he had to, he had to apologize and, and Bauschner defended him. And then he had to apologize. And then both of them got fired anyway. And McNeil right. had this thing where he was in Peru and they asked him about, you know, the use of, you know, certain epithets uh, re returning to black race. Um, and he, he, he put it in air quotes. He's, you know, he said, well, that word is used in rap songs and not here, whatever. He was talking about yeah. race and stuff. I remember this. Yeah. And somebody, somebody dredged that up. And again, originally, originally Dean Baquet at the New York Times, the chief editor, defended him. And, and then McNeil did the apology tour and they fired him because the That's same right. kind of underlay is kind of the red guard rising, uh, red tide, red guard. And, yeah. and, and it's this, you know, princess and the pea phenomenon where those get answered. And it's not really, you know, Nixon came up with a silent majority. I'm not sure it's a majority whether or a plurality, but it's a decent a bunch of people who are decent people and just don't yeah. want the politics invading every other sphere. And so that, yeah. that kind of segues to the other point that I would like to ask you. Uh, given your experience in your role at Levi's, certainly lately we've seen some marketing ploys. Uh, I think you're familiar with the Anheuser-Busch and InBev Bud Light uh, phenomena. And then also maybe we could talk about as that kind of segues into your other sphere of gymnastics and women's sports. Um, what's up with that with, you know, William Thomas at University of Pennsylvania, um, you know, who apparently pretty much only cut off the first and last letters of the first name and nothing else. Um, oh, I didn't realize that's how he got to it. Or well, she. I don't know how he got uh, it. I mean, he might, he might have just liked the sound of it, but but that's, you know, when I look at the word William, it's like just occurred to me one day. Oh, yeah. But, but apparently nothing true. else was cut off. And that, that you know, for Riley Gaines, that was uh, not a net gain. Yeah. Um, I'll take the Bud Light question first. <laughs> Please. Um, as I was, I was just 
yeah, I was just uh, writing something about it. Um, there's a lot of analogies between Bud Light and Levi's, right? They're very large, dominant share brands in their category, uh, typically have had broad appeal with men. Um, and I think with broad reach brands, it's very difficult because you have to bring people together. And in an increasingly divided world, that is harder and harder. With a narrow brand, you can be very specific in your messaging and you don't have to worry about pissing other people off. You really don't. But with a broad brand, the idea is that you find the highest common denominator as a way to speak to people. Find the stuff that they can all come together on. And Bud Light had typically done that through humor, you know, and they had a fun, lighthearted brand that mostly appealed to guys. I'm guessing probably 80 plus percent of their uh, drinkers are, are men, if not higher. Uh, the idea is it went down easy and you could drink a lot of them. I won't comment on the ethics of marketing and <laughs> drink a lot of our beers, yeah. but um, but that's that. And, and they've seen, you know, sales declines over the years and felt the need to kind of burnish their image a little, which is exactly the position I was in in 2013 when I stepped into the Levi's CMO role. But I knew my remit was I needed to keep the core fans who loved the brand and wore it for their whole lives while bringing in new ones, which included younger men and women. Those had, those folks had typically not been part of the brand. Our core consumer base men had aged over the years and we failed to kind of bring in their younger cohorts. Right. But you do that by finding the commonality, not saying, you know, screw that other guy. We don't like him. We'll just sacrifice him. We won't respect him. We won't respect that he's been a loyal fan his whole life. And it seems to me, um, you know, that is the mistake that I'm not going to remember her name, but the VP of marketing at Bud Light made. And she Alyssa was interviewed. What's a Gordon Heinerscheid, I think. Heinerscheid, yeah. Something like and that. And to me, it just seems a clear case of sort of not knowing and understanding your consumer, not respecting him, not knowing anyone like him in your social circle. So thinking if I go this route, this other route of choosing a trans woman, Dylan Mulvaney, who is sort of the influencer of the moment as, you know, our endorser, people are going to like it because everyone she knows likes it. Um, and you know what, if people don't like it, who cares? They're bad people. Well, that's a pretty bad calculation from a business standpoint, you know, and I, I would just say I worked with a lot of famous people and influencers over the years. I always cut the contracts myself. And my first question when I sat down with folks like Alicia Keys or Snoop Dogg is tell me your Levi's story. I looked for people that were authentic users of the brand and, you know, call me crazy. I don't think Dylan Mulvaney is an authentic Bud Light drinker, nor a Tampax user, which she yeah. has also endorsed and she doesn't get a period. And so I think this is what people are rejecting. There's a disrespect for the current consumer base. I think in the case of Bud Light, there's a disrespect for women who aren't even consumers, but women have spoken out. And I think the Nike example um, bore that out as well, because there's this depiction of women as sort of frivolous and ditzy. And you know, I would argue that a brand who chose a female endorser, a biological female endorser, and depicted her in a fashion that was equally sort of frivolous, shallow, and ditzy, they would be pilloried for being misogynistic. And so women are saying, why is it okay if it's a trans woman? That's not who we are. That's not what we're like. They're not beer drinkers or Bud Light drinkers anyway, but they, they cause a dust up and a bit of a kerfuffle, which we're seeing. Um, you know, I will say, 
this happens a lot. Brands make a mistake and they recover very quickly. There's been a significant dip in market cap, I think $5 billion in growing over the last week or so. Um, reportedly, retail sales are down 30%, although that's hard to kind of know and get that data fast. Uh, most people will go back to buying and drinking and eating what they like. So, I, you know, I'm not here to say that it's going to be a lasting dip, but I will say this. Their VP of marketing will be very careful about who she uses in the future. And I think other brands will be as well, because you just don't want this kind of negative attention for your brand. And I think that if she persists in being so dismissive of their core consumer as just this like terrible, bigoted, these terrible, bigoted jerks, she's going to find it difficult moving forward also you know to my mind it's a fun and funny brand there's lots of guys oh absolutely find a comedian a basketball player a youtube trick shotter Got, guys are not to... guys are generally not that hard to please you know they, they kind of um you know bill burr does this best um the comedian and um he he's like you know we just we want to sit down in front of the game. We want to be left alone, and we want to enjoy that moment. We want to watch the guy, imagine ourselves dunking the ball, whatever. It's like people want to like suck the life just out of that. They, they want the football players to be wearing pink. I mean, I get it. I'm against cancer. This is kind of I'm just channeling. No him. one's for cancer. Yeah, yeah I'm against <laughs> cancer. I'm against this and that, but I don't want to see Tom Brady wearing pink socks. Whatever. I mean, he, I, I don't think he has a line, but that's kind of what he his thing is. Just could you just let us sell us the beer? Just, that's fine. Just, you know, make us laugh, make us enjoy it. But we just kind of want to be left alone. And you have to have everything kind of. And so the, 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 I guess the question would be, what is what's up with that? You know, there's kind of been this, you know, uh, in, invasion of the body snatchers, a movie I bring up a lot um, where everyone looks the same, but some of them have been body snatched. And they 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 yeah. are pod people, and they they are there to you know get the next pod person. So so the norm the normies as you use, um, you know they have to be on the alert because people look like them, but they're gonna kind of convert them. So you know, the, the what what happened in business? How how long ago did it happen? What's ESG? Um, how how broad is this kind of movement? Who stirs the drink? I mean, what's happening? In, and, and yeah, I. I think there's a couple things happening at once, which I, I write about quite a bit in my book. And I think it started in the sort of early 2010s, but it accelerated in the summer of 2020, this sort of idea of brands taking very political stances. And at that point, you know, during the summer of 2020 with the BLM protests, every brand in America, even those that had not been political in the past, you know, took a stance on Instagram, if that could be called a stance, and they posted a black square and they said they were going to do everything they could to fight racism. And it really sort of accelerated that point. And the stories of cancellation are rampant for business leaders who said, I'm not going to do it, not because I don't believe in equality, but because my business is data science and you know I have nothing to do with this. And a lot of those folks were ousted. You know, I mean, even Vivek Ramaswamy, who is running for president, was ousted from his company or chose to step away because of the heat. Um, because he said, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. It doesn't have anything to do with my core business. So it just became the trend. And I think there is a difference in the business world today. It used to be assumed that business leaders were Republicans because they were. Um, now in the coastal cities, which is where a lot of companies reside, many of them are, are Democrats, um, or pretend to be, I'll just say that they're certainly capitalists, <laughs> they're CEOs and they like their big salaries. But, you know, in all of this 
privilege renouncing, they're no longer admired for being very, very rich, but they still have huge egos and want to be admired. So they do it by pretending to be social justice warriors and still keeping all the money for themselves. They don't care about the employees. They raid the coffers of the company. They lay off, you know, tens of thousands of people um, so that they can boost their stock price and take the money. These are not people that care about equality, but they pretend to. And in doing so, they avoid scrutiny because they pretend to be nice social justice right. warriors. They satisfy that vocal minority in the company that I talked about, you know, who's screaming and has brought their social justice politics from the university campus into the company. And they are squeezed at the top by firms like Blackstone who are, you know, or the HRC that are issuing scores around DEI initiatives. And CEOs want to be on these lists, that there are great places for women to work and great places for um, LGBTQ to work. And they believe CEOs, because their HR leaders and their core com leaders tell them so, that their corporate reputation will be destroyed if they don't make these lists. And so they court ESG scores. So they're you know, they're, they're crushed, they're, they're squeezed from the top chasing ESG and from the bottom from these woke employees. And they have no courage to just say, all oh, that's great. We're going to create an environment where everyone's welcome. And we're going to, you know, if you're the best one for the job, right? it's yours, whether you are female or black or LGBTQ, all of those things. We think probably a diverse employee base, especially for a large brand is going to make us better because we're going to better understand our, our consumers. And that's it. That's the end of it. But they're, they're squeezed between these two functions. And the fact is they like being touted as these social justice warriors and they get lots of great press and they shield themselves from scrutiny, which is what we saw with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried until it collapsed, which is what we saw right. with SVB until it collapsed. So at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, profits are what matter. And if that collapses because of this, and perhaps Bud Light is an early indication that things will start to turn, then it won't matter. You know, the banks, you know, they're going to get, um, you know, the, the stock price is going to go down, they're going to get a lower buy rating, and, and everyone's going to need to get back to business, but it's going to take some time because the pressure is coming from both ends. Right. And very few CEOs are brave enough and can find the words to just simply say, no more. Ted Sarandos at Netflix has done it. He refused to take the Dave Chappelle show off the platform despite pressure from employees. Mm -hmm. He said, if you don't like that, we're going to show a lot of different kinds of content, then don't work here. And he left it at that. And I don't think anyone left. I mean, right, if they to... did, it wasn't in droves. So yeah, that's, no, that's how that works. Absolutely right. I think you, you have a little bit of courage and then things kind of fall in line. You know, um, Mr. Musk took over Twitter and people have been gleefully predicting its demise, and I, I don't know the future, um, but you know I find it a very interesting, lively place. I was off it for a while, and um, and now it's back. And you know all of the, the people who you know say they want free speech, they want democracy, and so forth. They don't necessarily want it if 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 it's not you know what they want at that particular moment. Um, so we're yeah, I think it's unclear whether he does. I mean, I respect and admire what he said at the beginning, that he wanted it to be a place for open dialogue and free speech and people would not be censored. He's had a few missteps, I think, you know, like most CEOs and certainly if you're one of the richest people, if not the richest person in the world, you probably have an ego. Um, and he got into the little <clears throat> kerfuffle, which I think is really unfortunate with Substack. I agree. Over the agree. weekend. I, I'm, not, I'm not ascribing perfection to the guy, but I, I, I also don't yeah. think he's, I also don't think he's John Kerry and I don't think he's Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, you know, the, the Catholic Church has has indulgences, um, 
which is basically carbon credits, um, but on a more metaphysical level, um, before carbon credits were a thing, where you buy um, the indulgence of the church and, and, and so forth by spending money and you get rid of whatever other sins you might have had. And so, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio can go on his huge yachts and, and so forth and John Kerry, ditto, um, but, you know, and, and airlines and whatever, you know, private jets, but but they have this caring thing and they can prove it because they go to these, you That's know, right. I don't know, whatever thing. So it's an indulgence. And and yes. somewhere along the line, I saw this hamburger theory of politics, which is the two buns, the, the elites and the lower class are oddly enough of the left. And, and they don't they're not really joined yeah. because the hamburger in the middle, the hamburger is the yeah. meat. And that's kind of the working class. Those are the UPS workers who had to kind of do all the stuff that Nancy yeah. Pelosi didn't want to do. The hairdressers who come to her house are the people who cater Gavin Newsom's uh, thing at the Montecito, whatever it is. Laundry, you know, all yeah. those people, the, the underlings, you know, who, who have to keep masks while you don't, who get, you know, to do kind of mop up so you can have. Anyway, it's kind of this weird thing of, you know, indulgence has, has two terms. It's, it's very indulgent to act as if you can get by with those indulgences, these little sops uh, to the yeah. masses. Um, anyway, what so I don't understand in that, though, is why people don't see it. Um, you know, and I use an example in my book, Levi's Unbuttoned, about our own CEO, who, you know, we as a company, under the cover of COVID, laid off about 1,000 employees, 15% of the workforce, because sales were, you know, crashing with our stores closed. He said that we were doing it with empathy. And during the same time frame, he cashed out $43 million of stock. So we let the people go who live paycheck to paycheck, who have no nest egg, and it bolstered the stock price. And, and I, what I don't understand is why people buy the line that it was done with empathy, and they don't see the greed that drives it. Although I... I have to believe that's going to come crashing down at some point. Um, I don't know for sure, well, but I right. have it's, to. It's I, need, I choose to believe it. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted to uh, show people your book. Uh, this is um, uh, Levi's Unbuttoned. Um, and uh, that's not really helpful there. Um, you can get it on Amazon. Your other uh, earlier book is Chalked Up, um, My Life in Gymnastics. I, I unfortunately have not read either, but I've read blurbs of them and I've read your articles. Uh, you're in the New York Post uh, lately, which is kind of the, the Twitter of, of the newspaper world. Um, and I, I think it's interesting here, you know, your word bullied. Um, you know, people are, everything's anti-bullying unless it's somebody that we don't want to you don't like. talk to. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Riley's a good example of that, right? You mentioned Riley right. Gaines. She was just bullied, I would argue, assaulted at San Francisco State University. And now everything that's being published or what I've, there was a statement from the university, from the, the student group at the university saying basically she brought it on herself because she said things we didn't like. Right. Um, so I, I'm going to uh, also, because I, I do some shameless self-promotion here. I just want to uh, segue very briefly to my book. Uh, it's overturning Zika, the pandemic that never was. It just uh, today uh, was reviewed in, in the uh, Daily Skeptic. Uh, Zika, the pandemic that never was by Dr. Roger Watson, um, who's uh, dean of a nursing school, I believe. And uh, he, I think he gives a pretty uh, good assessment of it. I'd like to you know, have people read that. Um, I'd like people to you know, follow you um, and uh, um, you know, learn more about your work. I think it's been so valuable. And um, I don't know what else to say, really, uh, but that um, I've, I've really enjoyed being with you. I'm, I'm going to leave the, the floor for, you, for your uh, last words um, before we say goodbye. 
Yeah, I don't know that I have anything all that insightful to say. You know, my hope, you know, it's not easy post cancellation. <laughs> um, but I, to me, the truth matters more than anything. And, you know, it's all it's all worth it. And I think people will come. I think ultimately truth prevails. And I think you're right. There's a large cohort. I don't know whether it's a majority or a plurality who see it, who see the lies, but are too afraid to speak out. And my book is really an exhortation to them that they need to. Um, right. Because truth and actually, I would argue democracy and progress are on the line. And so that's why I keep talking to folks like you. I'll talk to anybody who will have me because I just want to provide a little tiny bit of inspiration to people to challenge in their everyday lives. Well, that's awesome. You know, you, I, two, two quotes came to mind. One is from Groucho Marx, which is, I would never belong to any club that, that would take the likes of me as a member. So I, I'm, I'm doubly honored that you uh, were able to spend the time with me, a reprobate mm -hmm. such as I am. Uh, the other one is from my grandmother. Uh, I'm not mm -hmm. sure where she got it, but it, it, it's, come, it's come up a lot in these last three years. And may she rest in peace. Um, she, she would say, she didn't use the word poop, but a, a similar word that, you know, a little uh, grittier. Uh, but she said, don't let them poop on your face. Open your mouth. Um, and and so first time I heard that, I, I was just like imagining the taste of it, you know. And then it, and then it occurred. I didn't really know what she meant. Cause, I mean, I, we heard this a few times and and it, got, it literally was explained to me because I was young, like seven or eight or whatever. And uh, it's like stand up for yourself and, and say and do what's right. And, you know, for my own you know, people, I, I, again, my mind is on a minor scale compared to yours. But, you know, when I was a kid, um, I was going to be bar mitzvahed. And, uh, and the, and so they, for the first time ever, we were going to reform synagogue, which is almost Episcopalian. Uh, they said, uh, we want the, 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 the bar mitzvah boys to uh, um, give a speech, you know, what's on their mind. And um, so fine. So um, it was not really my thing. I was a science and math kind of guy. But I said, you know, I, I, started, I started looking. We didn't have the internet. I, it was hard to believe. Um, so I started looking up the, the, you know, the nature of the bar mitzvah, the age 13. And in context, age 13, back in a, you know, a rural, uh, you know, agrarian sheep herding society, 13, you're kind of, you know, maybe going to get married yeah, next year, yeah. and and you know, so forth. And I mean, you form a minion for prayer. But, but it has, a, a, you know, kind of a, an association with manhood. So I, I said, well, look, in our society, there's 16. You get a learner's permit. There's 18. Um, we couldn't vote then. But 18, you can go to war. 21, you could vote. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, it's not like I want to stick around and do Hebrew school for all these more years. But why don't we have it tied to something that's, you know, socially appropriate or gives 13-year-olds something, you know, that, that, that kind of shows we've accrued knowledge. Whatever. At any rate. Um, so the rabbi said, yeah, no, uh, you're, you're not getting bar mitzvah with that speech. Go home, change the speech. And he, he did more than that, not quite chalked up level. But I, I was in tears uh, at the dais with, you know, with nobody in the, in the synagogue. And I came home, I was in tears. And my dad's like, well, what, what, you know, we went over the speech and he read it. It seemed pretty harmless. Um, and he said, you know, so he talked to the rabbi. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Long story short. Uh, he said, well, do you want to do it? What do you want to do? I said, well, I, I, you know, he asked me to do the speech. This is my, these are my words. So we found a new rabbi, went a different place and so forth. So, you know, that's not the same thing, but it, it kind of said. I agree. Yeah. You reject it. Don't go along. So I get, I get a little emotional for that. I apologize, but.
That's okay. I understand. I do too sometimes lately. Um, it's not easy, but we have to do it because the alternative is worse. The alternative means we accept and we live in lies and we accept that free speech is not a civil rights. And when we accept that, it means we don't believe in progress because open debate and dissent is the only way to drive progress. And it means we live in an authoritarian regime. So it stinks um, to go first or to go early. But to me, the alternative is way worse. And we keep going and we make friends with other people willing to do the same and support us. So thank you for having me.